Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Hey there, welcome to the third episode of The Dignity of Suffering. The genesis of today's podcast came from a comment that I found myself making that referred to a notion about Buddhism in the popular sphere. You see, in talking about the theme of this podcast, I expressed some worry that the idea of suffering would be misconstrued, as if I was suggesting a one-sided view of life. The, the commonly used excerpt from Buddhist thought came to mind, that life is suffering. But almost immediately as I said it, I realized that it must be a significant oversimplification of Buddhist thinking. There is a similar playfulness that results in an oversimplification of Jewish sentimentality, which is summed up nicely in a joke, which asks, how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? It's okay, I'll sit in the dark. <laughs> the, the recognition that Buddhism has penetrated our popular imagination and has contributed to our appreciation of the necessity of suffering inspired me to reach out to an old friend who is now an assistant professor of philosophy, Sean Smith, to help clear things up. I was excited to talk to Sean because I knew that he would, if nothing else, have very strong opinions in this regard, but I also knew that the conversation would be so much more, and it certainly was, and I look forward to presenting it to you on today's podcast. Sean and I had an interesting intersection in our lives, as we both lived in Toronto until each of us was taken overseas for work at precisely the same time. He to take up an assistant professorship at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and me to Stockholm, Sweden, as my wife got an academic position here. One of the most difficult clinical issues I face is the aversion to pain. Often at the beginning of a therapeutic process, there is a fierce resistance to the idea that suffering, sadness, and disappointment are normal everyday parts of life. As Sean and I will delve into in a moment, for the Buddhist, the notion of suffering is a multi-layered and very specific idea connected to a particular cosmology and understanding of the life cycle. Sean points out in our interview that even our recognition of our attachments and the pain that it brings to suffer through the loss of them is only one stage of what the Buddhists see as the path. Looking at this from an everyday perspective, often the first cut that we experience in life is the all-too-humanness of our parents and letting in the disappointment of the loss of the ideal. What that means in plain language is that we need, when we are young, to believe in Santa Claus, the tooth fairy, 
and to rail against the world when we cannot have what we want. Slowly but surely, though, these wishes for perfection are met with the harsh reality of a good enough environment. The problem, though, is that this does not always happen, and we are not always let down easy. Psychotherapy really becomes important for people who have been severely disappointed either by early loss, such as a parent dying when one is young, or a chronic, harsh, or avoidant response to our early emotional life and expression. What ends up happening is that we cannot tolerate normal, everyday disappointments as we get older, and we find ourselves either manically defending against loss by becoming strong and forthright and staying one step ahead, or we retreat, becoming isolated and fearing getting hurt in close relationships. There is, of course, a wide range, but nonetheless, the ability to tolerate disappointment is the hallmark of healthy development. The late American neurologist Yak Pangsep points out that it is our ability to be depressed at the right times that allows us to go through such important transitions as leaving home, watching our kids grow up, retiring, and ultimately death. But our popular culture has turned depression into a bad word. And I'll go out on a limb and say that even our campaigns to bring awareness to mental health issues can often miss the mark by suggesting that these intense, effectual experiences are a problem to be fixed. Of course, greater sensitivity to our inner lives is needed across societal levels. But the tone often needs to be different, so that the process of loss and negation in our lives is nothing short of normal, every day, and expected. I was super excited to delve into these issues with the brilliant Sean Smith. And without further ado, here is our interview. I teach a lot of people about Buddhism who've never studied Buddhism before in any kind of formal academic way. And one of the things that I've you know, come to realize over the past several years, you know, both in the classroom and then in you know, in the wider world is that everyone is kind of an expert on Buddhism these days, right? There's a, there's a very kind of widespread idea that Buddhism isn't really a religion at all. It's more of a life path. And everyone is now practicing mindfulness in some kind of psychologically operationalized way. And this is giving folks the, the sense that they really understand the deep tissue of the universe and that Buddhism in that particular form as they've absorbed it through their MBSR group or their app or whatever it is, is allowing them to mainstream the secret truth of the universe and that they really understand what's going on. And this is not in any way to denigrate the value of people's practice or experience or encounters with psychologically operationalized Buddhism, as I would call it. Not at all. But for me, as a scholar and a philosopher and a meditation practitioner, my interest is to represent Buddhism and to teach it to people in a way where you're forced to encounter how radical it is. It is absolutely a religion by any definition of the term. Anyone who says otherwise hasn't read any of its primary textual materials. And recognizing the historical multiplicity of Buddhism, 
the way in which its ideas have flourished and, and, and pollinated in different cultures and how we've inherited those ideas in, in North America, especially over the last 150 years, is fascinating. But for my money, what I teach it, I like to teach the radical stuff, you know, the, 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 the stuff that's really intense and counterintuitive and just to make people understand it. What do people miss? Like when you're like, when you, you know, when you hear the kind of popular narrative and, you know, I, I hear you, right? You're like, look, I'm not going to denigrate people for, you know, whatever, like taking what they can in life just to survive or, or you know, in the ways that things intersect and fit fair enough. But like, what gets your blood, not just boiling in terms of like getting it wrong, but what are you like, oh, I wish you had a better understanding of X, like, or, or like, yeah. this is like, this is, if you think that that, what you're distilling is, is interesting, let me, you know. Yeah, good. You know. So I would say in a word, I think that people have a very vanilla understanding of what I would call the emotional psychology of Buddhism and what is actually being prescribed, right? So Buddhist philosophy, and I'm going to speak, if I need to speak precisely or specifically about some particular school of Buddhist philosophy, I'll do that. But right now, to answer this question, I'm just going to say Buddhist philosophy generally and I think it applies to almost every facet of the Indian tradition, which is the traditions that I sort of engage with more specifically. Basically, what you're aiming for in Buddhism is to transcend all your attachments, where your mind becomes so calm and non-reactive that you no longer are emotionally affected by the oscillations between pleasure and pain, where you no longer feel grief, where you no longer feel anger. And that sounds fine, but when you recognize what's actually being prescribed and what it would take to achieve that, I think we should take a much more humbler attitude towards what Buddhism represents. So I'm thinking here in particular of two discourses in the in what's called the Pali Canon, which is the only complete canon of Buddhist texts that we have that's written in an Indian language and is sometimes thought of as being early Buddhism, though that term is a little bit problematic. For reasons I can unpack if you need if if it, if it's helpful, but the first discourse is one where the Buddha says to a, a group of followers, even if bandits were to kidnap you and dismember you with rusty saws, were you to generate even an ounce of resentment towards them, you would not have understood my teaching. Okay, the second one is when the Buddha's dying. The, the discourse that tells the, the, the story of the Buddha's final days in which he's passing away at the foot of a river underneath a tree and people are coming to pay their respects and pass on. And a number of his, his disciples are, are, who are not fully liberated are weeping openly, right? They're crying, they're grieving for, for the loss of this great world teacher from whom they've experienced so much benefit. And other senior disciples of the Buddha nearby who are fully liberated beings, completely enlightened, under the Buddha's dispensation, they rebuke these, these grievers. They say, "There's what's the point of this, right? Why, why are you shedding tears and generating grief and, and sadness in you? This is a law of nature. This is just what happens. Everything that is born dies. That's the Buddha's teaching. Everything that arises due to causes and conditions eventually passes away due to causes and conditions. This is just an impersonal law of nature. This is this is the this, understanding. This is our work. Why are you doing this? This is inappropriate. It's unskillful. So when you think about that, what we're being asked to do is to cultivate a mind 
that doesn't experience grief at the loss of our loved ones, that doesn't experience anger or hatred or resentment in the face of profound injustice. Now, there are pro-social movements in Buddhism that would dispute this, right? The Buddhist modernism, the, the attempt of Buddhism to make itself into a modernized religion has lots of resources internal to it to make it a humane religion in the 21st century. And I'm not arguing against that. But my point is that philosophically, what's actually being recommended is something absurdly super mundane that cuts against the grain of what most of us would think of as healthy emotional responses to basic joints in the narrative of a life. And Buddhism is, among other things, about cutting off those attachments and completely transcending them. And I think that that radical orientation towards transcendence <laughs> and the rejection of the world is something that gets lost in the kind of watered down, psychologized, vanilla versions of mindfulness and Buddhism that we experience as a 21st century North Americans trying to live productive lives in a post-capitalist society. And Buddhism as a religion, as a philosophy, as a life path, whatever that means, I think is one of the most radical and intense systems of practice and and that's ever been articulated. And so as a scholar and as a practitioner, for me, it's just like I like to emphasize those parts to make you uncomfortable, to, to, to get people outside of their preconceptions and force them to encounter, you know, both the arguments that the tradition embodies in its philosophy, but also the radical nature of the practices that are prescribed in order for people to realize personally in their own bodies the meaning of those arguments, right? Yeah. Samsara is to be abandoned, <laughs> right? And samsara is everything that you know, right? Everything that you experience is mostly suffering, even if you don't realize it, because you're too ignorant to understand why you're living the way you're living, right? So Buddhism is is a very radical religion for this reason. And I, I use that term on purpose, religion, because it is a religion, I think. So that's the thing that I really, that's the thing I try to focus on when I teach this stuff, for sure. Well, there's so many threads in there. And and I appreciate the tension you're holding between, you know, a kind of rigorous academic discipline with intellectual tensions that aren't solved and have, you know, that are very vibrant. And even within the sort of narrow field you work within, I'm sure there is hearty and healthy and fruitful disagreement and of course you, you know which in most academic disciplines is not it's not accessible to, to the masses and that's kind of the whole point you know that that to get to a point of that level of discourse is it is in and of itself a, a kind of training and you know zo zooming out for a second and and i think we we talked about this you know when we were still living in the same country <laughs> in the evolution of the psychology that I studied, th there was also a thrust in a similar direction where at the turn of the last century, there was a kind of dislocation of meaning from a kind of mystical participation in meaning to, to a kind of meta psychology of meaning. And then a kind of Nietzschean sort of like, there is no meaning, like you have to go, all the way, like there's no half measures here. <laughs> and, and that's a bit of what comes to mind when I hear you say, like, you have to understand, like, this is, 
and this is, I think, where I also bristle a little bit. And 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 I don't I don't bristle because I think people uh, like you know don't deserve to do what they want. I bristle because I don't think it helps. You know, the, the notion that doing mindfulness helps you then later that afternoon be in a good mood to drink your latte or like like the idea that these things get compartmentalized with this vision i think <laughs> towards feeling quote unquote better and and i think why that gets a bit complicated is because actually <laughs> what i hear you saying is that if you open this door you open the door to your dismemberment you open the door to death you open the door to whatever it is in your situation that has to be murdered and killed off. And, you know, just one more comment, which I think might be helpful for people who maybe are not sort of introduced to some of these ideas or because they're, they're quite specific in various thinking. And, and I, to be honest, as a therapist, I am sometimes shy to bring up ideas that that connect disappointment and failure with mortality and death because i often feel like if i go there <laughs> there'll be this immense gap between you know between what sort of how we understand frustration and anxiety in a popular way even on university campuses and and how it maybe is representation of loss and i think and this is where i appeal to your you know what you're talking about but one one thing I want to ask if this is if this aligns, you know, it strikes me that these are not binary processes. So when we talk about dismemberment or death or or having to relinquish our attachment on our effectual relationship to all aspects of our life, you know, it strikes me that the only way we encounter that is in our situation. It's on a spectrum, right? The only the only way we can ever actually have any insight into this is by is is actually in our you know in our situation in the failures of our life like that's how it comes to us you know this is when things fail when we fall on our face it strikes me that the, 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 this is the rehearsal like this is the this is like here it is and i don't know if that if if that language is aligns with how you think or if it's no, you know it does if, it does i mean i think that one of the most important things that I didn't mention in my earlier remarks that I think comes up for me now in response to what you're saying is that this language of the rehearsal, I really like, I like that language because it affords us the opportunity to explore another piece of the, the sort of Buddhist worldview that I think is very counterintuitive to the modern mind. And, and that in some ways, the modern mind that has gone through the Nietzschean meaning crisis that you referred to before is actually has a better grip on the problem of death than maybe Buddhism does. And the reason for that is that Buddhism, like most classical Indian religions and philosophies, has a cyclical view of life and death. So most people that you encounter in the world today, I, I do this thought experiment with my students every time I teach this stuff is I said, okay, most humans who are alive today have a belief in something called uh, what I'll call sempiternalism, right? This is the view that the, whatever is constitutively you is created at some point, usually by a God. And then that thing, call it your soul or whatever else you'd like, will last forever in some final destination after the death of your body in this life. Most people hold a version of that view. 
right? That's the Judeo-Christian view is the Islamic view, right? You were created. So the moment that your, your, your father's sperm fertilized your mother's ovum, the infinite creator of the universe also made a soul and beamed it into the zygote. And there it shall stay until that body dies. And then that soul will reap its eternal reward in heaven or hell, according to the merits of your actions in this life. Now, because most people hold this view, when you ask them, you know, that's a belief. None of us knows what happens after we die. That's a mystery. But we have beliefs about it. And most people have some belief or the other, or at least a hope. And that hope usually is structured around the idea that if I'm good, I can be reunited with those I love when I die and we can just hang out and be happy forever. And if you ask someone, let's just assume for a moment that not only do you believe that, but that you know it for sure, that you know that when you die, you will get to go to some destination that is coextensive with the moral qualities of your actions. And for a time at least, be reunited with those that have passed before you. Most of us would take that to be great news, right? That would be a comfort. Buddhists are like, no, I don't like, no, <laughs> I'm not like, that's the problem of suffering for Buddhism, right? The, the, the idea that you are reborn, even if you are reborn as a God, where you live for thousands or millions of years in bliss, for Buddhism, everything is impermanent. Which means if you're reborn into some air, into some realm, you will eventually pass out of it, right? And there are gods in Buddhism, but they're so old they forgot that they were born. So they mistakenly believe themselves to be eternal, and then they propagate those beliefs among their followers, which is kind of an amazing idea. But it forces us to recognize that in Buddhism, the problem of death is not the problem of separation per se, though it is part of it. It's the problem of, of, of cyclic existence. It's that when you die, you're going to be reborn. And that means you have to get born again and grow up again and learn again and, and live again. And most people would think, hey, what a great opportunity. And the Bruce is like, no, like this is the worst. You're trapped. <laughs> you are trapped in a cycle over which you have no control. You have the to go through solution. this all, all over again ad infinitum. Yeah. It's forever, right? <laughs> That's the opposite of Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche says in his art articulation of the eternal recurrence that to say yes to life means to affirm this concrete particular life you're living right now forever. That you're like, I will do this one life that I've lived in all of its detail over and over and over again forever. That's the kind of optimism he's prescribing. Buddhism is like, yeah, no, like I'm out. I want out of this. This cycle is a nightmare. The, the bones of those that I have mourned would constitute a mountain. The tears I've shed at their, at their passage would fill an ocean. Those are the kinds of narratives they're working with. Those are the images they're embracing. What do you ascribe the birth, so to speak, <laughs> of that idea? You know, because we, we often, you know, fall into this trap of thinking about religion or religious ideas or certain tropes as having been part of our awareness or our fantasy of the world for, forever, which is not true, right? These are, these are responses to evolutions of consciousness, to, yes. to our, our most vicious impulses. And we, you know, we had to find ways as we became aware of ourselves to contain something. How do you understand what this was a response to? Well, it's very old idea and it doesn't just come from India, right? Plato believed this too. So if you read the if you read book 10 of Plato's Republic, that's it's a cyclical world. 
right? Like there's, you, you get reborn. So this is an idea that, that goes, ver- goes back to the origins of philosophy, East and West. And I think the main thing that's happening there is an attempt to, you know, and this isn't just my idea. Scholars have worked on this for a long time. I think the idea is it's an attempt to understand or to project, depending on how, what your view is, uh, a moral order, a moral order onto things. So it's, you know, even in Buddhism, you know, where, which is working explicitly with notions of karma, which is that every action, which is what karma literally means, karma is the Sanskrit word for action, and it's fruit, the phala, the result, that there is a connection, right? That there is a there is a kind of cosmic moral order to things, that the qualities of your actions in this life have consequences. And I think that part of what's motivating this idea to extend that process beyond this life is the recognition that lots of people are just terrible and don't reap consequences for their actions in this life. Right? That there 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 are there are people who behave badly and don't get what they deserve. And the need for justice Right, which is what's motivating Plato in the Republic, the need to understand justice is, I think, part of what motivates a lot of ancient philosophy to posit a, a more extended order to things that like, if it, well, if you don't get your comeuppance in this life, you'll get your comeuppance in the next, right? I think that's a big part of it. What an interesting notion that the idea of justice being meted out over many cycles of rebirth accounts for our helplessness in the face of wrongs going unanswered in this lifetime. It feels like a particularly poignant idea given the current climate where there is an increased demand for transparency, everything is on display, and there is a greater push for accountability across gender, race, and in society in general. When we come back, Sean and I delve into the connection between his meditation practice and therapy, and we discuss how these more philosophical notions intersect with the world of effective neuroscience and what is actually required of us to bear suffering. Look, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe. I would be grateful if you would help me out by rating it and sharing it with your friends, as without you, this wouldn't be possible. Also, if you are looking for more resources or would like to connect further, please head on over to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, where I provide some free resources that examine how to increase our vulnerability in relationships and learn how to expose ourselves in the right way for deeper connection. Lastly, don't miss my upcoming live interview with Dr. Gabor Mate on Thursday, June 3rd, at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be diving into issues such as male shame and aggression, and you can also sign up at mitchellsmolkin.com. Now, back to my interview with Professor Sean Smith. So I know that you also have an interest in effective neuroscience. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> and, yeah, that's right. And... I don't know if there's a bridge here, but I'll attempt to make one and then we can see where we land. There's definitely a bridge. <laughs> I, I mean, between sort of where we come at this as, you know, thinkers and practitioners, et cetera. Yeah. When, when, I, when I listen to you and I consider what you're saying, and even this last piece around 
consequences for our actions, you know, karma and, you know, another, another word that gets used <laughs> uh, probably way too much. But from a clinical standpoint, when I'm working with people, and myself, of course, and I can never really, I can never talk about my work without, of course, including what I don't know about myself and what's coming next, because that always scares me if I ever get too far away from my own, <laughs> from what I don't know. But nonetheless, there's this incredible, when, when people come into my practice, and I think this connects to what we're talking about, there are very sophisticated worlds that have developed. And I often, you know, Darwin talked about how there is, there is no organism that is the same, period. You know, that we, we can try and average things out as, as, as much as we want. But at the end of the day, and I think we're seeing this right now, of course, with the pandemic, right? That there's a huge desire to, to have some simplified understanding. And what makes us all so crazy is that you know the further you go down the rabbit hole, the more you realize that that as an organism, people are responding in all kinds of ways to what might be the same phenomena. We don't know it mutates, and so that's I think that for me that's I think part of the anxiety, right? This kind of invisible, nefarious, you know, and so that that's maybe a conversation for another time. But the the link is that when people come in and this attachment to a way of seeing the world is in trouble, either because the, the rigidity to which somebody believes certain things or commits to them, perhaps to avoid anxiety, has left them feeling very isolated, alone, can't connect with their spouse, because, and this is where the neuroscience for me is so fascinating, and, and maybe it's important that, that there's a distinction for me also between the kind of everyday emotions and things that people deal with. And, and I think what you're also talking about, which is this, this you know, there's a whole other unfolding here that, <laughs> that you know, and, and for me, they're, all, they're always in, in play, right? I think it would be an inflation to suggest that somehow anybody is ever connected or knows, or, you know, like we're, we're puny human beings at the end of the day. And, and occasionally if, if, if one has a glimpse of that, great, like that's, <laughs> you know, but, but my point is on a, on a very practical level, the kind of anguish that I witness when I try and slow things down, or I hold up a mirror to, to this way of viewing things that somebody holds dear and then I find it's like chess, right? I have to find some way to <laughs> get around it because, because this is what helps us survive, right? This is ultimately we get up in the morning and if we can put Humpty Dumpty back together again, when our eyes open up, that's, that's a good day. That doesn't always happen. And that increasingly gets more difficult as we get older. And, and so just to come back to that idea that, that my sense in some ways is that, and I'm not getting into issues of justice perhaps in what we're seeing in the Derek Chauvin trial. And I mean, that, that, that to me seems like maybe I'm wrong. That's a whole other kettle of fish that deserves a great deal of attention and sensitivity. I'm talking about something else in the sense that something works itself out in us, whether it's in physiological symptom, whether it's in the ways that our relationships get interrupted, whether we just hit like a dead end. 
And, and the reason I started this podcast is because, and I think this ties into a bit of what you were saying earlier, if that process is cheapened, if when you're in the kind of anxiety of like, I don't know who I am anymore, or I can't connect to this, and we flip the app open and say, oh, if I listen to this beautiful music and breathe for 10 minutes, maybe I can recommit myself to, to the thing that now I have lost. The, the suffering is just going to continue. And this, I don't know if I've just borrowed this idea or I've, you know, so forgive my simplicity here, but this idea of small s suffering and, you know, capital S suffering and the idea of like neurosis as in the everyday little things that we complain about, oh, it's raining today, I have a headache or like, oh, I can't, you know, versus I think, I think what we're saying is that when we reach these moments, it's, it's a bit of a crossroads. And if you have your way and people actually understand what actually is, is required, that dignifies things like that elevates these moments to like, no, 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 no. Like, like this makes sense. You're not, you're not failing or you're a failure because you can't meditate your way out of this, or you can't, you know, do a, do a, an improv class and all of a sudden, no, like, like this is, this is the real deal. And that's okay. Like, that's, I don't know if that makes sense, but there's a kind that's, of tweak there, which I think is really crucial. No, I agree. I mean, one of the, th- this is just a, this is a bit of a, this is a little cheap, but it's a, it's a sort of line that I've, I coined when I've been trying to think about where I think Buddhism as a tradition, as a philosophy, as a set of contemplative practices has a lot to teach. And then where, where it kind of might, have less to teach. And, you know, as someone like I practice two hours of meditation every day, but I also see my therapist once a week, you know, and they're very different things that I do mm-hmm. when I'm in the therapy session or when I'm sitting on my cushion. And and the the sort of the tagline that I try to, that I use to describe the difference is that Buddhism is really good at talking about the truth about the nature of the mind and psychology as it's practiced in the therapy in a therapeutic setting i think is really good at helping us like create create and map meaning and the meaning of your life is not the same thing as the truth of your life because the meaning of your life is going to be very autobiographical very narrative oriented about reclaiming certain things and integrating them into into a a, a larger story of who you've been who you are and who you'd like to be buddhism thinks that identity is an illusion. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. The idea that you're the same person today as you were yesterday is like, no, like that's not like the, even to conceptualize your own life in that way is a form of ignorance in Buddhism. So um, that doesn't mean the two can't work together. They, they clearly can, but that's for me, a really important difference, a joint that I try to keep in mind. <laughs> I'm, going on, I'm going out on a limb here, but I, I'm assuming that that reconciling those parts of you hasn't always been easy. <laughs> oh, not at all. Not at all. Uh, the part of me that's just a quiet monk that wants to just retreat from the world and, and, and experience inner peace. And the part of me that's kind of extroverted and passionate and intense and wanting to engage with the world is like, yeah, they fight a lot. It's a, <laughs> they, they fight a lot. You know, it's a challenge. It's a big part of my own personal kind of working out what I'm trying to do with my life is trying to find to make trying to wait, find a way to make those two kind of rest easy inside the same body. Well, and I think that comes out not, you know, that comes out in your work, right? That helps me understand actually the tension that 
you know, the, the line you're trying to hold, you know, that line that, you know, what research is always me search, right? That's right. <laughs> oh, very much so. This is why most of my research in, in Buddhism has been focused, not, you know, it's been very much focused on, on the nature of emotions and bias and, and the relationship that our feelings have to how we understand the world we're in and, and the people that we're interacting with. And I think this point about, this is where I think Buddhism has the most to teach us in a, in an explicitly modern sense, because their understanding of what suffering is and how to contextualize and analyze big S suffering as you would use it, I think is frankly unparalleled in the history of human thought. This is, this to me is really where Buddhism uh, packs the most punch because for them, what you call big S suffering is actually the coarsest and most surface level suffering there is, mm. right? So for Buddhism, there's three levels of suffering. Uh, the commentaries distinguish three levels. So there's suffering or unsatisfactoriness or misery or whatever you want to call it in, in the Indian languages is dukkha. And there are three levels of dukkha. So there's dukkha dukkha, which is like obvious suffering. There's viparinama dukkha, which means the suffering that's brought on through change. And then there's sankara dukkha, which is the dukkha of conditionality. And so what we mostly think of as suffering is like things like explicit pain, anguish, psychological duress. And that's obvious. We, we know that that's a problem. And it's something we, you know, as, as therapists or, or, or doctors or just human beings are trying to work out. But the, 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 the really brilliant thing about Buddhism is they think, well, yeah, but the reason you the reason those those obvious miseries are such miseries to you is because you're not in touch with these subtler levels of misery. And dukkha, dukkha, the fierce pain, profound depression, mourning anguish, these things are occasional. They don't happen all the time. They come about as punctuation marks in certain sentences of the life. And they're very difficult to deal with when they do come, which is why, you know, when people go to funerals, no one can believe that the person is dead, right? The number of times I've heard this, I feel I can't believe they're gone. Why? It's the most believable thing in I know, the world. I know, I know. It's but we we live this way, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> right? I can't believe this happened. They were here yesterday. It's like, of, co of course. How else was it going to go? Like... That's right. That's right. <laughs> and like, but it's a there's a you know in some ways it's a colloquialism, but in other ways it is a literal expression of the way people live that they don't believe it because they don't live with an awareness of death, and so. That's why the second level of dukkha, the viparinama dukkha, the dukkha of change is so important because for Buddhists, they're like, look, you are going to be frequently separated from the people you love and forced to interact with the people you hate. There's, you know, like you're going to go to work and there's just that guy in the office who just every time he opens his face, you just want to punch it because it's he's just terrible or whatever it is. And the person you love most, they're not here right now. And that's that's far more frequent. Right. That's far more frequent. And 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 we're constantly trying to solve that problem. Oh, yeah. Can I interject Please. just quickly? If anybody yeah. is listening to this podcast right now and you work in large organizations, you know, I'm on a board of directors and I'm always the one in the room when people want to take other people on or the membership or they get in a knot. And and I say, look, this is inevitable. This is don't take the bait like that. People criticize or get worked up or have their opinion 
we need to remain above all this because this is the most predictable part of any of these processes. So I love that you just named that because I'm always not, not that I get it, but, but we can't be surprised that other people generate disdain or resentment. Like th this should be what we go in just expecting if you're ever going to even try and have a conversation with more than one person, it's hard yeah. enough with yourself. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so i love that that's i think that i think i think businesses could could learn a lot just just because everyone thinks oh this organization's tough people here it's toxic here it's like no everywhere <laughs> everywhere that's right yeah so that's a kind of suffering that we were also kind of intimately acquainted with but like we often don't think of it as a general problem. And so we're always trying to solve the problem piecemeal without recognizing its inevitability. And in some ways it's irreducibility. And this leads to the last level of suffering, which is actually really hard for people to hear. You know, most people don't want to hear this one because it's, 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 it's much more pervasive. It's subtler and it's constant. It's not just occasional or frequent. It's basically constant, which is the suffering of conditionality. And it's the fact that just to survive, you're kind of just being bombarded by a world and having to self-regulate in the face of it all the time on just a basic homeostatic level. You know, so the way I try to explain this to my students is like, okay, so I've been talking for a few minutes now and I'm starting to get thirsty. So luckily I brought my water bottle. But if I didn't bring my water bottle, I'd get a bit more parched before the end of the class. Now, what would happen if I didn't drink? And there was always some awkward silence. And I mean, I mean, if I just didn't say for 36 hours, what would happen? Well, what would happen is I would die. Right. And every day you get these kind of signals in your body, these feelings, they're homeostatic feelings like, okay, it's time to take a drink. It's time to get some food. It's time to go to the bathroom. Time to I'm stretch. I'm drinking as we're talking about this. Yeah. Though, so I'm just going to acknowledge my need, my need for nutritive and yeah, liquid. That's right. Yeah, the yeah. nutrient, the nutrients of the body are there. Are, it's, a, it's a requisite. And, you know, the way I put it to try and be really dramatic is like, that's your body giving you a death threat. Right. And you you experience that multiple times a day. It's eat or else. It's drink or else. That's constant. That's just a feature of getting through your day that you are warding off impermanence, that you are warding off disintegration and death at every moment. Your body is constantly through the interface of your own feelings that you immediately feel in the, within the framework of your body. You are constantly be giving instructions about what to do. And we obey those instructions mostly without fail. And the dukkha of conditionality is the recognition that the fabric of your mind, the, the temporal architecture of your experience moment to moment is sort of undergirded and buoyed by this constant reaction process that you are feeling feelings and you are generating attitudes of either trying to appropriate and maintain those feelings or to get rid of them as soon as possible. And we're really bad at sitting with our feelings for this reason is, you know, in the body. So, We've been sitting on this chair for a few minutes now, talking to each other in different rooms. The number of times I've kind of just like moved my hand up and just kind of, you know, just sort of looking for something to touch or bite my nails. Like we're constantly agitated just by being alive. Just that's just sort of the, the cost of doing business. You know, th this describes precisely a kind of mantra of mine that because I, I work a ton with couples. Uh, 
and families. You know, I, I have so much empathy for all of us, precisely because of what you're referring to, which is the fact that all the time we are, as you're pointing out, this homeostatic function within us is looking out for our survival. And the layers upon layers of which, like, of how that functions in our life <laughs> and the confusion. I mean, really, like, just, you know, I, I remember when I, early in my marriage, when these, these survival pieces came out and, and the, the ways that this gets translated, of course, into our own ecosystem of, of language and experience. I mean, it really, it really is terrifying. And, and people, that's right. well, it is. I mean, people yep. are just like, what, like, what the fuck is going like, how, you know, you know, how did backpacking with you and having sex on a beach in Greece, like all of a sudden turn into like, like hunger games, like, you know, like, yeah, like, you know, and, and of course, what do we inevitably say? Oh, this, like, this is wrong, or I made a bad decision, or like, like our brain immediately just goes through the Rolodex and we ruminate on like, how did, how did this happen? Versus I think what you're saying, and again, I know I come back to this word all the time, but, but if we can recognize exactly what you're talking about that that gives a, a a dignity to to the countless failures that are going on every single day you know i love that you're starting with the basic fundamental ideas of like sustenance because that that will win every time right our autonomic nervous system will just ignore us and say sorry you're not in charge anymore we'll feign death we'll go numb but i think i think that on a very practical level it's important yeah, to have that in the back of our minds. Yeah, w w when this comes to us in whatever way it comes to us, which is, you know, I think the whole point of it is that it's always evolving, which is why it's it's so uh, uh, nefarious. And <laughs> I did have a question, though, and it is taking us back, but I don't I don't know if this will lead us anywhere. But I do have an interest in this in this podcast in kind of talking about therapy. Uh, you know, in in a you know not in a precious way, in in a you know because it has become so common. You know, I mean, everything on the inside is on the outside now, and you know, it's it's and and, and you know, the theory of psychology changes, of course, in, you know, aligns with this, right? You know, on HBO, there's that series now. I think it's called Couples Therapy, and it's literally this New York psychologist and four of her couples. And I just I was like, ah, like I want to do like like I've already been asking couples, and then it came out. I'm like, damn, like. You know, and you need money to, you know, make that work and liability and all this stuff. But but truthfully, like, why not? Right. Like this is not turn of the century Vienna where the, you know, the Me Too movement 100 years later is basically basically the evolution of what where psychoanalysis started, which was a very private investigation of sexual trauma, which then now, you know, is a much, much larger discussion. But that's a tangent. I'm curious when you're in therapy. <laughs> If there's ever moments given this tension or over time with your meditation practice and just I think you said those in some ways can hold very different places within you and and sort of trying to give integrity to both and and understand them intellectually, I can relate. Have there been moments in therapy where where like 
when I run out the room and and just like you're like I just need to go meditate or like like I, I don't know if I'm making sense but is there yeah. ever or like does it ever get too concrete and you're like like it, it's confusing or I don't know you know so for me so I, I I love your question I'm going to answer it very honestly but before I do I want to just say one thing about the last thing that you said you know which is and this will lead directly into my answer to your your question which is that from a Buddhist point of view this awareness of this constant conditionality of the embodied mind being situated in a world that is in some ways going to kill you and recognizing the incessant bodily process of sustaining the mental life. That's not something we have to keep in the back of our minds. It's something we have to keep in the absolute forefront of our minds. This is actually the first object of attention always for a dedicated Buddhist, as I understand it. And so for me, that's the place where being a kind of serious meditator and a philosopher and, and, you know, my work isn't just about Buddhism, right? As you know, it's about cognitive science and the philosophy of emotion and uh, the nature of attention and consciousness. So I'm kind of deep into the study of the mind. And so when I, when I take that all into a therapy session, the risk, the risk that I always bring with me is that I'm just constructing a safe little world for myself because the therapist, most therapists who I've worked with, are, I've been very fortunate. I've had some very skillful therapists who've helped me tremendously. And I'm very grateful for that. But I also, my intellectual capacity is sometimes so much that I don't want to get in the, I don't want it to get in the way. I don't want to just think out loud about my life. I want to work through my trauma and get better. You don't want, you don't want your, you don't want your intellect to get in the way. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Okay, got it. Just okay. And I'm very verbal. So it's, and that's what you're doing at times. You're talking to someone. So I'm always in the back of my mind worried that I think from a therapy, a therapist's point of view, I'm a good client because I show up ready to work and I've got things to talk about. I'm not, they don't have to pry it out of me. But then I'm like, am I just building an interpretation of my life that suits whatever dispositions I'm not in touch with? Right. So the reason I, the, the Buddhism piece is actually helpful is because I'm very aware of what's going on in my own body. And so when I go into a therapy session, I'm trying to be very aware of what's in my body at all times so that I don't just start talking. And that if I am going to say something, it's going to be because I'm feeling very immediately what's happening in the framework of my own body and I'm relaxing and accepting what that is. And then I'm communicating with my therapist from a place of like being very much in touch with that. And when I do that, I feel good because at that point, then the sort of deep somatic work, you know, this, this sort of sensorial precursors to full-blown emotions are very much in the framework of my conscious attention, which then makes whatever comes out at the semantic level feel much more grounded. And so as a matter of process, the practice of meditation and my understanding of things from a philosophical vantage has, I think, helped me be a, a, a sincere client in the context of being in therapy. The place where things come apart or, or the tensions arise is that most of my therapists are just like, go out and have fun and be a human being. And I'm like, yeah, but also, <laughs> you know, 
human beings are terrible and like I'm tired and I don't want to. <laughs> and so the, the, it's a place where the tension between the part of me that's kind of a monk and the part of me that's a, you know, a highly sexual, extroverted, passionate individual, the tension becomes highly articulate. And it's hard for me to know which of those perspectives to privilege sometimes. And, but for me, that's actually, the, that's where therapy gets interesting and good because it's not, I, I, at that point, I don't want to run out of the room. I'm like, okay, it's good that I'm here uh, because now I can like confront these tensions in myself and, 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 and make some meaning out of them. And, and, you know, and, and at least incline myself towards resolution and integration, even if that might be an asymptotic process, I have to live this life. <laughs> and that's, that's what we're here to do. So uh, no, I mean, therapy is a gift. And uh, it's never something I want to shy away from. It's uh, I look forward to it every week. It's it's a it's an anchor for me. I love that you shared that. I, I love that you opened up and and <laughs> you were like, you know, if anything, <laughs> if anything, what's hard is is when they're just like, hey, Sean, like just go go out and have fun, you know, <laughs> like yeah. because that's I mean that's you know. I mean, I mean, all of us have that shadow and and our personalities get too one-sided. And even if we can sit here and have this, you know, really great, you know, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Like, even if we can kind of go into the weeds, you know, th there is the counterpoint, of course, you know, that, that, and there's somebody, you know, it's helpful for you to mention that because there's someone I'm thinking about in my practice who, you know, also had a, you know, had to develop a, a, a very precise intellect and it became aware to me in the process that I obviously had to meet them there in a, in a sincere and meaningful way. But I also had to have my hovering attention and be like, wait a minute here. Like, I also have to work against it because if this yep. becomes this kind of like earnest, you know, kind of monolithic enterprise here, something in me was just like, oh, like, you know, there's something missing. <laughs> And that's a great observation. The Buddhism is actually very powerful, at least for me on a personal level, like having an understanding of Buddhist philosophy and practice has been very powerful in, in, in avoiding intellectual avoidance. Because what my intellectual life is organized around is mostly around is, is around understanding the nature of suffering and the way in which effective biases structure perceptual salience and, and consciousness. And so for me, I don't, my desire to be free from suffering is far stronger than the discomfort I feel at having to face it. So I'm not, I don't avoid it because I'm just like, no, I'm going to put everything I have into this because I've, I've been, you know, frankly, quite sad for most of my life and I fight it. And my intellectual life has been an attempt to acquire tools to fight it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have any time to waste and I don't want to play any games because life itself is much more interesting. So I don't want to get tied up in any intellectual hallucinations that avoid the actual concrete problem that I'm there to address because the problem is so serious, right? The problem is suffering. And that's like, every, that's everyone's problem. And it's such a serious problem. And the fact that we learn how to get used to it, because that's what, it, that's what a conditioned mind is good at is just getting used to its conditions. That kind of, Conditioning is, is the most dangerous thing of all. And I never want to be content to be a miserable, 
person. <laughs> that's, that's a terrifying fate. No, I love what you just said. And it, the image that came to mind for me was that you, the, there's an awareness that the intellectual pursuit is a bridge to your pain and sadness and in equal measure, you know, that, that's a bit too simplistic, of course, but in the attempt at least to, to recognize, you know, I do yoga quite religiously and have for many years. And I am routinely like, I'll leave my office midday. You know, I went back to doing Bikram yoga when I moved to Sweden. I missed in some ways the intensity of the practice, it, you know, the regularity, the, re the repetition. And I'm routinely in tears. Like I am like, like I am routine, like the difference between the sweat on my body and the tears coming, you know, and, and I can relate to what you're saying because, you know, as painful as it is, or, or when I'm on my mat and there's this part of me that's like, I don't want to be here today. You know, th there's also this other voice that's like, this is, you know, to be able to meet my anguish. I need this structure and space, you know, there, there, and there's a kind of dissolution that I, I, I kind of, I crave in many ways because it, it, <laughs> yeah. it relieves me of something, you know, that, that I'm kind of working hard at, you know, sometimes in, in productive ways, other times in not so productive ways. And as maybe a, a final comment, and then we can, you know, uh, maybe wind this down. I mean, I could talk to you all day. So I'm really glad we reconnected. You know, I think that like, you know, we'll do it again. Yeah, you know, it's it's been too long. Part of the challenge, and I think this is kind of where our our, our conversation began today. Part of the challenge is that when you scratch the surface of these ideas, they, they go on forever. <laughs> and how they reach popular practice or discourse and you know. That that's a study in and of itself in that intersection. And, and, you know, Jung has these early texts actually with Kundalini yoga and the early 20, you know, and, and it was, these were revolutionary texts. Like people were not writing about, you know, Eastern practice, at least as far as I know, in places like Zurich and, you know, they weren't, you know, these were, I think, really early texts that some of them are just being edited now and re, you know, and coming out. But as I go into this work or do this podcast, there's this kind of, uh, hunger for tips or like you know, the person that's helping me with social media is like you know the, you know people like hacks or secrets or you know those kinds of things and i'm usually just like before going into this i to be honest was allergic because when you're in it and you you're with someone and you see what's required to withstand feeling annihilated it's like how do you like how, you know how do you you know, how do you make a tip sheet, right? Like it's, it's just, I mean, that just seems so dishonest. On the other hand, I think there is something that can be communicated about what you just shared, which is the complementary nature of your discipline that, you know, has allowed you to sort of have this tension with therapy or with a kind of analysis of yourself. So there's a container there and that has borne itself out in my practice. And it's not popular to say these things. We all want to be equal. And, but it's like, no, look, when, when people come to my practice recently, I had a couple that have a strong meditation practice and there was a lot going on in their relationship, but actually I was able in short order to go right to the thing and it could withstand it. There, there was the ability to regulate and 
And in, in this sense, insofar as we can even talk about these things, and I was thinking about it recently, there is a value. There is, there's a value in communicating the relationship between these kinds of disciplines and practice. And what we all experience as kind of like stress at work or stress in our family or just, you know, life decisions. Like there's, there's, you know, I was in a conference in, in New York and there was a French Canadian researcher and he was one of these, you know, Gabor Mate was also on the panel there. And, you know, you know, Gabor Mate basically came up and he said, we don't have to research, like, who the hell is researching trauma on children anymore? Like, we don't need data of what kind of trauma hurts kids. Stop hurting kids. Like, we don't just spend a million dollars, you know. So, so you had this kind of hardcore cut to the, like, not suffering fools. And this French Canadian researcher came up to talk about therapy. And he's like, yeah, I went to therapy. I saw a Rogerian guy. He told me to work less, <laughs> to see my friends, and to get exercise. <laughs> and I remember like being in the audience being like, that, like that's so simple, you know, like, and then all these years later, I'm like, you know, that's good advice. Like we like this, this that's is gonna right. help any other kind of process that we try and endeavor, you know, like it's not really a simplification on the surface of it. Those things are hard to do in period, but I don't know if, you know, that's maybe a bit long-winded, but like, you know. No, no, no. This is so important. I mean, I, so when I teach Buddhist philosophy to university students, you know, the first day of class, I tell them, I'm like, this will be the hardest class you've ever taken. If you took this class because you, you know, went to mindfulness seminar and you think Buddhism is way cool, you're going to have a really hard time in this class because I'm going to take you really deep. And academic work is in general hard right now because we're remote and it's it's challenging and everyone basically on the planet is traumatized. So please just do the following. Eat three meals a day. <laughs> do like physical activity of some kind every day. And, you know, write in a journal and see a therapist if you can. If you're doing all those things every day as a matter of structure, then whatever else comes up for you, you will have some architecture built that will allow you to interpret and hopefully work through it. And that's just in the context of teaching a class, right? Of course, is a you know, if you go to therapy, it's a you know different context, but you know it's not all that different. And so, I am like you, maybe even more so. I am highly allergic to hacks. I don't believe in that because I think that real progress is hard work and well and earned so you know cookie cutter wisdom you know meme based one-liners that are there to like transform your life i i i'm i'm actively hostile to that culture i have built up my professional career and my identity as a pedagogue and a university professor and as a as a representative of the traditions of Indian Buddhism in direct opposition to that kind of commodification and of of the practices that these traditions have brought to us and of the wisdom that they embody in their textual traditions. That being said, there are places in which in order to make progress, you need very simple things to be in place. Right? have a schedule. <laughs> Wake up and go to bed at as close to the same time every day as you can. Eat well. Drink lots of water. Do yoga or physical activity or martial arts or bicycle or swim or whatever physical activity. Do it as close to every day as you can. Write in a journal. See a therapist. Those are very basic things. And those are really good things to do. So for me, it's like, for the simple things that need to be done, simple advice is what is required. 
for the complicated things that need to be done, complicated understanding of the situation is what is required, right? So it's about proportionality. When you're just trying to get the surface level set up, keep it simple. When you start to drill down into the sediment, make sure you're steady. All right, some doors, once they're open, they can't be closed again. So you go slow, you go calm, and you take it a step at a time. If you want to learn about the nature of the self, don't read Eckhart Tolle. Read Indian Buddhist texts in translation or whatever tradition you like. Go read mm. Advaita Vedanta. If you mm. read the Upanishads, <laughs> you know, people are smart. And there are resources out there. So, I mean, don't go to Oprah Book of the Month Club. Go to the source. It's out there. There's, there's actual literature worth reading. If you want to read, read it. If you don't, don't. That's fine. But I think people underestimate their own intelligence. And I think that it's possible to just do a good job and, and keep the simple things simple and recognize the complexity of the complex things and work on them slowly and with discipline. One last question. And, and by way of asking it, two, two memories came to mind for me. I worked, as you may remember, in the emergency room at a hospital in Toronto in crisis management. And one story, which is just a very kind of heartwarming story that, that I remember was that I was sitting with a man who was severely alcoholic and, you know, we're sitting in this room at the hospital and, and he says to me, you know, I don't know why I'm, I'm hallucinating when I'm drinking. There's these songs that are in my head. I don't remember what, what Indian language they were in, but he mentioned, you know, and, and I said, well, where, where are they from? You know, he said, I don't know. And I said, well, did, did your dad used to sing to you when you were little? And he goes, oh yeah, all, all the time. <laughs> and you saw this little, like, like, and it wasn't insincere, right? Like something was so, had gone so far from, and it was just, it was just touching. I don't, I don't know what else I'm saying about that story than just this kind of moment of like, of what I experienced in that work, which was very different than what we normally encounter. You know, the people that I got to meet and get to know are people that often, you know, will move away from on the bus or like, you know, because we just can't, like, it's something is being processed there that is far beyond our experience. The, the other thing that came to mind for me was that there was a policy in the emergency room that if somebody was heavily addicted to drugs or alcohol, before they received counseling, they had to detox. <laughs> wow. And it just always drove me up the wall because often these people were very isolated. They, they had no family. They'd often, this had interrupted their income and, and they lost, so they were just alone. And I'm not even suggesting there was some panacea or quick fix. I, I know there isn't. I know that people aren't bad people because they can't help people. That we're, we're complicated. <laughs> but it strikes me when, when you talk about, look, read, read these texts or certain things have to come together in our life. Even for the human nervous system to be able to calm down long enough to focus on an idea and actually let it wash over you, right? That's something I think people don't understand that, that like, you know, we're not always talking about the same thing we talk about symbolizing and therapy, like vigilance, trauma, it, it makes us have a really hard time to even sit and, and have something penetrate because as you pointed out, 
our brain will always be protecting us for survival. And that includes, sorry, can't, can't focus for five minutes. Like I have to watch out for myself. My question is, <laughs> why do you think, why do you think it goes so wrong? <laughs> what, uh, why you know, does it go so wrong? That's you know, a great question. Like what, like, like you're, you're, you know, you're espousing something that I totally buy into. I commit myself to sometimes success and sometimes failure. It allows you and I to sit here, I think, and through thousands of kilometers, like have an emotive, reciprocal, you know, lots of stuff has to happen for that to be possible. <laughs> Why phenomenologically does it just go so wrong? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. And so uh, I, I think I have the beginnings of an answer, but it's, it, you know, I, I, I want to just say that it's, I do not want to commit the sin that I that I accuse many popular writers of making, which is, you know, reducing answers to hard questions to simple phrases, and then, you know, monetizing them. So yeah, I know I'm asking you, uh, uh, it's just so crossed a, my mind. And yeah, it's, yeah, it just there's, a, there's, a, yeah. <laughs> there's a little trap in there, but I, I will say something about it. Um, for me, uh, and this is sort of something I'm hoping I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to engage in a, a I'm going to write a book on this for the next four or five years or so, if I'm lucky. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we, we don't really have a lot of discipline in our attention and attention is a skill. Attention is something that can be trained. It's something that can be regimented. And I think that we live in a world these days where our attention is being, you know, assaulted and entrained in ways that are outside of our understanding and our introspective access and our control. And I think because of that, because our minds become very scattered and agitated, that we are far less able to self-regulate in grounded ways. We can deal, we can survive often, but I think a major reason that things go so wrong is that life is hard. <laughs> That's just the fact. And the kinds of things that get thrown at us, the way that we process the transition from what's happening to how it's making us feel, to the kinds of feelings that it brings up in the body, and the way our brains and extended nervous system integrate those feelings by repressing them or boxing them off, that, that those defense mechanisms are built into us very, very early in our development and learning to see them in real time, learning to have actual access to them and to de-reify and relax that process. That's a tremendously subtle bit of skill. And most of us don't get training on how to do that. And even those of us that do, we fail often. So it's because the system's built to fail. Because the you know not to be too dramatic about it the world is the world's suffering, <laughs> and I feel very privileged to have the education and the skill set that I've been given by my teachers, and I still suffer very deeply a you know, lot of the time. <laughs> it's a great answer, and I actually asked the wrong question because Gabor Mate's voice came in my head where he says it's not why the addiction but why the pain, and in so many ways when somebody comes in and they have resorted to whatever means possible to live with their grief, we may want to ask the question, how did it go so right? <laughs> because that's, that's actually what you're saying is that this is, this is fundamentally what the design is 
and to encounter it and contemplate it, that is a nuanced, lifelong, ever-challenging journey to be with and, and wrestle with these incredibly sophisticated, powerful so that that was a wrong question. I mean, that that like like I had great, even though it was difficult, empathy. And that was it. It was like you cannot ask this person to somehow detox before they talk to somebody. And even then, I don't think it would have worked. I'm not suggesting, oh, they get five sessions, but there was just something like there is such anguish there. And and we need to just somehow just understand that actually this isn't their fault, quote unquote. This is our. This is our, all of our inheritances. So nice talking to you. I mean, I think that I wanted to do this, you know, without cheapening the subject, but also to use your analogy to your own therapy to not take myself so seriously as to not have fun with it and not not to pretend that that we can't disseminate these things in in all kinds of ways or refract it. That just just to give some oxygen to this because I think it's. These are important dialogues. And if some of it gets through, great. If it doesn't, great. Like, I'm so happy we crossed paths again. Yeah, it was a good conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for staying with me to the end of this fabulous conversation. I, I was particularly interested in how Sean opened up about the tension between his meditation practice and how that functions in relation to psychotherapy I think it's important to acknowledge how we hold these spaces in our lives where we work hard to develop a practice perhaps of observation while at the same time being very much in the world and having to confront our everyday challenges. I hope you'll stay with me and join this conversation. Please subscribe, rate the podcast, and head on over to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, for further information about how to get involved. Don't forget to sign up for my interview on June 3rd, 2021, with Dr. Gabor Mate. He is unique in his time, and I look forward to speaking with him. Until then, I remain faithfully yours.